the back. We're going to be in Revelation 19. Uh, real quick announcement here we want to hit. Uh, the signature ad campaign for Henry County Right to Life. If you want to get involved with that, I need you to have you sign up by Sunday. Sign up sheet at the back there to the right. That's going to be in the Napoleon and also the Defiance paper. And uh, you can uh, have your name signed up and also there make a donation to Right to Life if you so choose. Or, you know, if, uh, if you can't do the donation, hey, you can still get your name signed up there just to show that you support uh, Right to Life there. So that's back there to the back to my right. So if you want to prayerfully take a look at that, you can. Okay, Revelation 19. Now, uh, we are to the meat, the heart and soul here of a lot of what we're going on with in the book of Revelation. We're, we're done with judgment for the most part. We still have the great white throne judgment coming up, but I'm saying the bowl judgments, the trumpet judgment, the seal judgments, that's done. Armageddon, that's done. The destruction of religious and economic Babylon that we went over there in Revelation 17 and 18, that's done. Verse 11 of Revelation 19 is the second coming of Christ that we've been building up with. And once you get to the second coming of Christ, you have that, you have Satan bound for a thousand years, Jesus ruling and reigning literally on this earth for a thousand years, the millennial reign, you have the great white throne judgment, then you have two chapters to get into eternity to help us explain what eternity is, what heaven's going to be like. So a lot of great stuff here, and it's kind of nice to be moving past the bowl, the seal, the trumpet judgments, and to be able to get to some of the stuff we're going to talk about tonight. So... If we remember correctly, last week we talked about the destruction of economic Babylon, and that's the destruction of the world system that was set up. And the first few verses of Revelation 19, basically from verse 1 to roughly about verse oh, about 5, is this idea of praise going up, of hallelujah going up to the Lord for what he did and the judgment of going on. You have to remember, we've been waiting thousands of years for this event to happen. And, and finally the judgments are done. Finally we're opening the door for Jesus to return. And so you have five verses here in Revelation 19 of hallelujah and praise and God returning and just this heaven rejoicing over what's going on. And that's what we finished with last week's that idea of rejoicing. So we're going to pick it up here in verse 6 of Revelation 19. It says, and as I heard, excuse me, and I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters, as the sound of many mighty thunderings, saying, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife was made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit prophecy. Let's have a quick word of prayer before we get into this. Lord, as we just get to these final verses here, Revelation, we've studied a lot. And Lord, really what it comes down to is just, what do you want to tell us tonight? We pray that your spirit would speak, we would listen, and just that you'd be with all things, Lord, all the sickness, all the health concerns going around, all the classrooms going on in the back. We just pray that your hand be upon all things. And as always, Lord, you teach and we listen in your name. Amen. Well, we're introduced here, real quick, before we get to our main topic, I just want to show you then verse 6, another one of those omni-words. On Sunday, we kind of hit this a little bit. We talked about God's omniscience, all-knowing. Well, here's another one of the omni-words, omnipotent, which means all-powerful. So they're rejoicing up in heaven because God's all-powerful, and he won. We're ready for the second coming. But we have to talk about this in verse 7. The marriage of the Lamb has come. The idea of marriage. Now, we're not going to talk about marriage, 
We're going to talk about the idea of God being married. And some of these examples I've used with you many times before, the first one that pops up a lot, and it happened a few years ago when the Da Vinci Code was coming out, this idea was Jesus married. And I had a lot of people call, call me and contact me and said, so what do you think about this idea of Jesus being married? And I always told them, yeah, Jesus is married. And I always took them off guard a little bit. I said, Jesus is married to us. We're the bride of Christ. So when I look at those movies in Hollywood saying, was Jesus married to Mary? Well, no, it's a bunch of baloney. He's already married. We're the bride of Christ. And that's what we have to talk about tonight, that idea of being the bride. This concept of marriage, though, it's, it's, it's kind of a funky concept because, you know, for me, I, I'm around weddings all the time. You know, I think we did five weddings out here last year, and we got a wedding coming up, and we got another couple more planned. I mean, there's weddings are all over. In the 12 years I've been out here, and lots of weddings. So you kind of get used to the wedding concept. And in, in, in fact, here's a real funny story. I think I shared this once before, but it bears repeating. I was doing a hospital visit one time, and I ran into a mom, and uh, I did the ceremony for, for her son. So we're sitting there talking. I'm talking to the mom. And some of the other nurses came. We're all just kind of sitting, standing there in the hospital talking. So the one nurse finally asks, um, asked her and said, well, how do, how do you know him, referring to me? And she goes, well, he married my son, is what she said. <laughs> And so everybody kind of took a, a step back a little bit. I didn't know what to say, and I probably shouldn't have said this. I said, well, it didn't work out. That's what I said. But the reason I bring this up is because I say that a lot. I say that. Oh, I married them. I married her. I married him. And Dawn, finally this year, she came up to me and said, would you, would you please quit saying that? And I said, quit saying what? Would you quit saying that you married her? You know, oh, I married her. She said, can you, that you performed the ceremony for her. So yes, I have performed the ceremony for many people. I have not married a lot of girls, but I have performed the ceremony for many people. But this concept of being married, here in verse 7, we're married to Jesus. Now, it's easy for me to see Jesus as my friend. It's easy for me to see Jesus as my Savior. It's easy for me to see Jesus as my Creator, as my brother. I'm not going to lie to you. You know, I've been saved for uh, almost 19 years. This idea of being married to Christ, that's one I have to chew on and think about for a little bit. Because you have this mindset of almost, you know, wearing white and this wedding and this ceremony. And really what it's trying to say is it's talking about the intimacy, the closeness of a married couple. That that's the type of intimacy and closeness we're supposed to have to Christ, is we're supposed to be so close to Him. And just as we say when we do the weddings, you know, that they're joined together. One of the things I always hit in premarital counseling is this idea of one flesh. You are, you are one emotionally, spiritually, physically. You are united together. You are one. And this is the picture that we're supposed to have here of Jesus, that we're connected, we're close to Him, we're one with Christ. And just like in many marriages, marriages start falling apart with a husband and wife. Don't act like one. One of the phrases I use all the time is to act like roommates that live together. They don't act like a unit, like one. Well, the same thing happens spiritually. If you don't feel you're one with Christ, your relationship with Jesus is going to feel very distant. And so the idea of married here to the Lamb. Now, just like we have in our society today, we generally have this understanding of you get engaged, and then you have a ceremony, and then you have the reception. And that's kind of the same thing here that you see in the Old Testament. They used a little bit different words. Uh, there was a process of being betrothed, if you remember that with uh, Mary and Joseph, that she was betrothed. That was a fancy way to say engaged. It was carried a lot more context than what we have today with being engaged. When you were betrothed in the Bible times, you could have been betrothed for a very, very, very long time, for years, and it carried a much closer it wasn't that you lived together, it wasn't that you were married yet or knew relations with each other, but yet there was a closeness that was going on. And that's why when Joseph found about Mary, even though they were not technically married or being pregnant, Joseph had ramifications where you know he could have said, hey, 
this gal obviously did something she wasn't supposed to do. It carried a lot more weight than just saying you were engaged. Well, after you were betrothed for a while, then you had this idea of the wedding. And the wedding wasn't like the weddings we have today. That's one of the things I always tell people in, in premarital counseling is, listen, you spent all this time planning the wedding, and I'm not trying to burst your bubble, but the actual ceremony is only going to last maybe 15, 20, 25 minutes. That's how quick it is. Well, back during Bible times, this wedding thing would go on for days and days and days. And then lastly, we have the reception which the reception lasts a few hours in our context, in our culture, where during Bible times, this reception was a feast. It just went on and on and on again. So very similar to the idea of being engaged, ceremony, reception, but much longer, betrothed, wedding, and feast. So when it says right here in verse 7 that the marriage of the Lamb has come, we're married to Christ. And now it's happened, it's done, this marriage is here and, and that's what the celebration is going on. Let's talk about this a little bit more. Go to Matthew 25, please. Matthew 25. It's amazing when you study out the New Testament how many times Jesus uses the example of being the groom and us being the bride and this idea of marriage. It's all over the place because that's the way he looks at it. It's the closeness and intimacy of marriage. That's the closeness and intimacy you're supposed to have in your relationship with Jesus Christ. So Matthew 25 talks about this a little bit more. We're going to use this as a stepping stone. Once again, what would happen is you'd be betrothed back during Old Testament times, New Testament times, I should say, too. And so, therefore, the wedding itself, you didn't know necessarily for sure how things were going to come down. The bride, excuse me, the groom could kind of show up when he wanted to show up. It wasn't like we have today where you pick Saturday at 3.30 and you send this invitation out months in advance and everybody RSVPs. It wasn't like that in any way whatsoever. This idea of the groom coming to get his bride was a very special event. And this is what you see here in Matthew 25, verse 1. It says, Then the kingdom of heaven should be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. They're waiting for the groom to come to take the bride. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessel with the lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. See, they just there was not that time frame of always coming at this time. What well, midnight, verse 6, a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Well, then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but rather go to those who sell and buy for yourselves. So while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. The answer and said, Surely I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now, there's a lot of symbolism here. Oil represents the Holy Spirit when you look at this in the Bible. So you have five with the oil, five without. So that means you had five with the Holy Spirit, five without. They all were, though what? The ten virgins. They all were part of the group. Well, it's just like church. Typical Sunday morning, we have a few hundred people. Some are saved, some aren't. Some have oil in their lamp, some don't have oil in their lamp. They're all still together. See, if you would just look at these ten virgins waiting for the wedding to start, you couldn't tell who had oil in the lamp, and you couldn't tell who didn't have oil in the lamp. Same thing, look across the church. You can't tell who has oil in their lamp, and you can't tell who not has oil in their lamp. You, sometimes you don't know. Well, these ten, five of them thought they were okay. They weren't. They didn't have oil. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. They didn't have the relationship with Christ. So when it comes time for the groom to come, a picture of Christ returning, they're not ready. So what do they say? Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out, verse 8. Here's the thing, verse 9. I can't give my oil to anybody. And I still see this today. I still people that try to save their kid. That they're going to save their child. They're going to save their grandkids. They're going to save their brother, their sister, their coworker. They are going to do it. Oh my goodness, you can't do that. If you could give your oil out and you could save somebody, you can't do it. They have to know Jesus Christ personally. 
As it's been said many times in many ways, God has no grandkids. I can't get anybody into the kingdom of heaven. I can't give anybody my oil. I can't do that. I need to be prepared and ready when Jesus returns. And then it's also my job as a pastor to tell you, do you have oil in your lamp? So they're waiting for this. This is a picture once again of the wedding and the groom and everybody coming. Because look at verse 12. Assuredly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Be ready. Be spiritually ready because you don't know when the wedding's going to be. And as the bride of Christ, you want to be ready for this wedding. You want to be prepared. And that's what it says back here in the book of Revelation. Did you catch that in Revelation 19? It says right there in verse 7, And his wife has made herself ready. Ready. Ready for Jesus to return at any moment's notice. That when the groom wants to come, we're ready for that. Well, how do you make yourself ready? I mean, because if you can make yourself ready, I mean, it almost makes it sound like you can spiritually get yourself where you're supposed to be. No, I can't make myself spiritually ready, but I can work at it. Philippians chapter 2 says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, here's the phrase, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is to God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. That phrase again, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's getting yourself ready for the turn of Christ is when you work out your own salvation. Now, we've used this example before. When you work out, you're not creating new muscles. Biceps don't become triceps. Triceps don't become quadriceps. You take the existing muscle that's already there, and you're making it stronger. Well, that's the same thing spiritually. When I work out my salvation, I'm not saving myself. That's impossible. It's the same thing of saying I'm going to go get oil from somebody else. It can't be done. When I work out my salvation, I'm taking the salvation that's already in me through Jesus Christ. I'm making my walk in relationship stronger in him. And just like in life, we need to work out to stay in shape. Well, spiritually, we need to work out to stay in shape also. Hence, verse 7, we need to be made ready. Now, I'm not thinking about any individual when I say this. I want to make sure that's clear. But once again, of all the weddings I've done out here in the 12 years I've been doing this, which has been a lot of weddings, the, the bride always tries so hard to make herself ready for the groom, that they pick the dress that's a size or two smaller than what they are. And, I, and I'm, not, I'm not making that up. I, I'm just telling you that's what it is. And anytime we do premarital counseling, it always ends with the prayer because of pastor, could you pray I fit in my dress? And I'm not kidding. That's what it is. The groom, he doesn't do a single thing to make himself ready. We're lucky if he shaves and cuts his hair type of thing. But the bride has this attention to detail. One of the things that I like to do when, when the first sessions we get together is I, I, I say, pretend she's not here, and I ask the guy all these questions. I say, when are you getting married? What time are you getting married? What colors has she picked out? What day did you... I ask him all these questions. I want to know if he knows what's going on. And a lot of times the guy says, I don't know, ask her. The groom's not worried about it. The purpose of right here, and for you gals that have been married, you know the stress, the anxiety, the whatever. You know verse 7, his wife has made herself ready. It's a lot of work to get ready for the wedding. Well, spiritually speaking, Jesus is returning. There's a lot of work to get ready for that. Now, I'm not saving myself. I want to make sure I'm working out what's already been saved. It says in the book of 1 John that you don't want to be ashamed at his coming. He is returning. I want to be ready. I want to be spiritually ready for Jesus when he returns. I want to be ready for that. Well, how are we ready? Verse 8, to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. I want to look good. I want to look good when Jesus returns. I want to have the fine linen. I want to have the clean and bright. I want to look good. Here's the problem, and if you remember this correctly, when we're going through Romans on Sunday, I can't make myself look good. (laughs) I can't. 
You see this phrase in verse 8, the righteous acts of the saint. Just a quick reminder from Sunday. In Romans that we're studying right now, the word righteous or righteousness is used 38 times in the book of Romans. And one of the phrases that keeps getting repeated in the book of Romans is that you can't make yourself righteous. Your righteousness is given to you by Christ. The fancy term is imputed to you. God makes me righteous. So in this instance, I can't clean myself up. God makes me in fine linen, clean and bright. Remember what it says in Isaiah 64, 6? All my righteousness is like filthy rags. If I try to clean myself up for God, I'm going to be a pretty ugly bride. I'll tell you that right now. I have to trust that not only is the groom coming to get me, the groom's going to make me look good. And that comes through Jesus Christ and him alone. There's a great passage here, and you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it. It's one verse out of Isaiah 61. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For listen to this. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. What a great verse there. Just as the bride adorns herself with jewels, Jesus himself, as it says right here, clothes me with salvation and covers me with righteousness. See, when you see the clothes that the bride is wearing in Revelation, the only way that can happen is through Jesus Christ. That is the absolute only way. So it's just a quick reminder to us, and we know this from studying Romans, is if we want to make ourselves right with God, the only way to be made right or righteous with God is through Jesus Christ himself. There's no way I can find any fine linen, clean and bright in my closet in any way whatsoever. Isaiah once again says, my works are like filthy rags. If I want to be made right in Christ, it has to be through him. So not only does Jesus as the groom come to get me, but Jesus also as my Savior clothes me, make sure I'm ready for my wedding day as he's coming to get me. So that is the marriage part of that. Does anybody have any quick questions, comments about that before we get to the marriage supper part of it? Okay. That's the first part. So now let's look at the next one here, verse 9. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Now we get to the last part. The wedding's over. Now it's to the feast, to the marriage supper. I mean, the reception. That's one thing I always tell people, too, doing premarital counseling is, Listen, just, just get through the wedding, and then you can just go enjoy yourselves. It's the reception. Well, this reception, this feast that was going on, this was a blessed event. This is something that has been prophesied about again and again and again. This idea of God bringing this celebration together. And this really kind of what is the millennial reign. The millennial reign is like a thousand year long party, if you will, celebrating the marriage of Jesus and the church. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's in Isaiah 25. You don't need to turn there. It says, The Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. And it goes on to talk about how he has this celebration. Jesus has been waiting for this again and again. I mean, this is what he's been waiting for, is clean house with the earth, return in the second coming, have his bride with him. And we've got to look good. You know why we have to look good? Because jump ahead real quick to Revelation 19. Look at verse 14. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. We want to look good. That's the pictures being taken at the end. You know, I want to look good for the photographer. The only way I can look good for the photographer is when Jesus cleans me up. And so he's cleaned me up. He's got me. He's taken me. I'm the bride now. But verse 9, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, you ever thought, who's called to the marriage supper of the Lamb? Well, think about those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Old Testament saints, they are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Tribulation saints, they are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. But we, as the church, 
We get to be the bride of Christ. That, that's our role in this. See, when the rapture happens, the bride of Christ is taken out. We're the bride. So those in the Old Testament, yeah, they get to come to the party where they come as invited guests. Those tribulation saints that die here in the tribulation period, they get to come to the party too. God leaves nobody out, but they come as invited guests. We have a special place. We have a special role as the church, as the bride of Christ. And that's a place of honor. Now, once again, for me as a guy, I have a hard time even, even saying that. Part of me says, oh, you know, Lord, I don't need to be the bride. I can just take an invitation and I can just show up. I don't want to just show up. That means if I showed up, that means I either died in the Old Testament, which as far as I know, I didn't. And if I'm not the bride, that means I missed it. And that means I have to come as an invited guest through a tribulation saint. So if I need to wear a dress to make the rapture, by golly, I'll wear a dress to make the rapture. I'm going to be the bride of Christ. And so that is the beauty of this is we have that special place that comes along in this. And this marriage supper of the Lamb is this huge celebration of Old Testament saints, church and tribulation saints, all together now in Jesus Christ. That's what the marriage supper of the Lamb is found in verse 9. And this is something that God has waited for for thousands of years, is to have all of his kids together. Old Testament, New Testament, tribulation, all together together. And what a party that's going to be. And that's the marriage supper of the Lamb. Does anybody have any quick questions about the marriage part in verse 7 or the marriage supper part in verse 9? Okay, then let's finish this up. We're just going to do verse 10 here because verse 11 starts a new topic. And I said, I fell at his feet to worship. And remember, John's talking to an angel. And he said to me, see that you do not do that. I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, there's a couple of little important points here that comes out of this. Is We don't worship angels. Angels are here to serve. Angels are here to point us back to God. Now, the reason I bring this up is because it's not uncommon to hear cults, false religions, false denominations use angels as a purpose that they're not seen in the Bible in any way whatsoever. And when any time I see one of those stupid shows on television about angels or something like that, and I see some of the stuff that they say happens like that does not line up with the Bible in any way whatsoever. When you see John falling down to worship this angel because he's so overwhelmed with what's going on, look at what the angel does. He says, get up, get up. I'm a servant. I'm just here to serve God. I'm here to point people. Look at that little simple two-word phrase, worship God. If I ever hear a story about an angel doing anything else other than pointing people towards God, I'm really, really leery of that. That's the role and purpose of angels. Look at this last phrase. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. See, when we think of prophecy, we always think of foretelling. And there, there is the realm of prophecy of foretelling, where God predicts the future. But there's also another form of prophecy, which is called forthtelling, F-O-R-T-H. Forthtelling means speaking forth for God. An Old Testament prophet, sometimes they predicted the future, and sometimes they just spoke God. Thus saith the Lord, Old Testament prophet. Well, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What does this mean? Everything we study in the Bible is about Christ. We always got to look for Jesus in all that we do and say, Jesus himself said, the whole of the book is written about me. It's all about Christ. You know, when we went through Leviticus a while ago, when we went through all the different sacrifices and we talked about the Day of Atonement, what did we do? Look for Jesus in it. That's what it's all about. It's all about Christ. What is the purpose to Revelation? The purpose of Revelation is not seal, trumpet, bowl judgments, and Armageddon. That's the problem. People look at Revelation, they think that's the whole purpose. The word Revelation, if you remember correctly, means unveiling. This is the unveiling of who Jesus is. So the purpose of Revelation is to find out who Jesus really is. And as we've said before, you almost learn more about Jesus through Revelation than what you do studying any of the Gospels. Because in Revelation, it's unveiled who he truly is. 
Yes, he's our savior, but he's also the returning king. Yes, he's going to rule the world in the millennium. We see all these different roles of Christ. So this last phrase for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Everything we do is proclaiming who Jesus Christ is. That's everything we do. And you guys know this because we finished every single Revelation study this way. The only thing that matters as we study through this book is have we walked out of here with a deeper, stronger walk in relationship with Christ? As it says back here in verse 7, have we made ourselves ready? Are you a better looking bride now than what you were when you came in here? Are we growing in our walk in relationship to Christ? As it says in Philippians there, are we working out our salvation, getting stronger daily in Christ? Number two, do we see the purpose of verse 10? Is our whole life just what's worship God and let's tell people about Jesus? My goodness, there's so much stuff in life that we get ourselves pulled down with, and I bet you some of you came in here tonight either worked up about something, bothered about something, or you're fretting about something right now. And the whole scheme of eternity, does it really matter? Now, sometimes it does. Sometimes we're dealing with the soul and salvation of a person. But a lot of times in life, it really just doesn't matter. I had a situation just pop up recently. I was going from point A to point B, and um, just got off the wrong way, wasn't going the way I wanted it to go, and you have that brief moment of frustration. You really just stop once it's all said and done. You're thinking, why in the world did I get worked up about that? It doesn't matter. How many times in life do we have a situation that we get worked up about and it really doesn't matter? The only thing that matters is are we worshiping God and are we telling people about Christ? That is all that matters. So next week, we're going to get into the second part here, Revelation 19, and the actual second coming of Jesus that's going to happen in Revelation 19, verse 11. And so that's going to be an exciting part here as we continue on with this. Does anybody have any final questions, comments here about anything we went over tonight? All righty, let's have a word of prayer and we'll let you guys go. Heavenly Father, we just come to you now. Lord, we want to be the bride. We want to be the bride that is ready. We want to be the bride that is the salvation is worked out. We want to be strong in you. Lord, if there's some spiritual muscles in our lives right now that are weak, Lord, strengthen them in you. Lord, if there's an area in our life that's pretty spiritually flabby, work it out in you, Lord. We want to be strong in you and all that we say and all that we do. We say thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. We lift this up in your name, in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. All right, you guys have a good week and God bless.